Preparedness is key, making sure that you've got emergency action plans, incident management plans, crisis management plans, that you drill these plans through exercises and people have developed that muscle on just what to do when things do go wrong and they they will go wrong. You're listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, a podcast for professionals responsible for the safety and well-being of their employees. Each episode features an interview with a leader in employee safety to discuss how to protect your employees from a wide array of threats, from severe weather to a global pandemic. Let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast, where we discuss insights and ideas for how to protect your most valuable asset, your people. I'm your host, Peter Steinfeld, and I'm joined today by John McClellan. John is the Global VP of Security at International Justice Mission, also known as IJM. Thank you so much for being here on the show. I do appreciate it. I know you're busy. And our primary topic today is protecting the people who protect others. But before we begin, can you give our listeners just a little bit of a background about the incredible work that IJM does? Yeah, we're a faith-based non-profit organization, and our mission is to rescue millions and protect half a billion by 2030. We've been around since the late 1990s. Our mission is to protect those that are the most vulnerable in society and lack access to justice. And in doing that, we have a variety of different approaches. We work with local law enforcement to identify people who are in vulnerable circumstances. We then work with the justice system to bring the perpetrators to justice and provide rehabilitation to those that we have rescued. Wow, that's fantastic. I guess just for more context, can you give our listeners just a little bit more background on you and your career? Yes, I spent 16 years in the police in the north of Scotland and then was conducted to Kosovo in 1999, basically following the NATO troops into Kosovo, where I was part of a contingent that set up a police training school in Kosovo at the time. We spent 18 months in there. I went from there off to East Timor and did some more work with the United Nations on investigations into the atrocities that happened in East Timor back in 1999-2000. And then returned to the US in 2011 and started working with one of the organizations that bids on USAID money, ran their security for the Africa region and doubled in a couple of other regions before coming to IJM in 2017 and I've been here since then. So you bring a really wide global perspective when it comes to employee safety to the table. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, let's dig into it. What are some of the ways that IJM protects and provides justice for victims of violence and oppression? We work in 20 different countries in four different regions across the world. And depending on what our casework is in that country, we look at that either with recommendations from likes of the IOM or from local law enforcement or just from people who pick up the phone and call us. So let's say, for example, we're in Uganda, and what we do in Uganda is intimate partner violence. We develop a case with the local law enforcement, working with them, building their capacity so that they, when we actually move in to do the, the rescue for the people or we bring that case to court, the evidence is there and it's supported by local law. That can, in some cases, it requires a, an actual physical rescue where, for example, when we're in Ghana, where we're dealing with children that are enslaved in fishing boats, you've got to go and you rescue, physically rescue the children and bring wow. them to safety. In cases where it's intimate partner violence, sometimes the partner is removed because they're arrested. 
but sometimes we've got to bring the person who the violent, who's the subject of violence into to aftercare. So we build up the case where we move in to effect a rescue or to arrest the perpetrator. We Once we've got the persons rescued, we put them into an aftercare system. And it's, again, we come alongside local facilities that have uh, aftercare options for us. We vet these aftercare options. We provide training for them. And then we monitor whoever it is training and put them into these places through to rehabilitation and, and back into society. Sometimes we're bringing in children as young as three and four, and they're there for a long period of time. Other times it's adults that have just been enslaved. So in, in India, for example, you can have people who have been in bonded labor for decades, and they've got no concept of just how to operate in, in society. So a lot of psychosocial work having to be done there. So that's the, the law enforcement, that's the aftercare side of things. And then we come alongside the, the justice system, and we work with lawyers, the kids, to improve the justice system and to ensure that cases are pushed through court. In some cases, can take many, many years to, to, to get to, to conclusion. In some of the places that we work, there's a lot of corruption. So the perpetrators have money, they're well-connected, and they try and buy their way out of these things or they stall. We've got a case running in, in Kenya now that's been going for five or six years, and the perpetrators are just able to delay, delay, delay. Mm. Just having that staying power to see it all the way through is, is critical. And now we're moving towards working to try and provide system reforms. That's working with governments, with local authorities, with advocates to have people really change the, the system to ensure that good work that we're doing now isn't quite as hands-on all the time. It becomes more of a, a cultural thing. So, for example, Indira Gandhi, I think 40 years ago in India, made it illegal for bonded labour to happen. 40 years on, it's still happening, but now the Indian government are standing up and recognizing mm. that. And actually, some of the states in India are saying we're having a day dedicated to this particular law. So these are the kind of reforms and changes that we're ultimately aiming at. Yeah, I mean, that that's it. It's You can only do so much day-to-day just going in and throwing a life preserver, but if you can change the system, man, what a difference that can make long-term. Yeah. Well, I mean, clearly your people work in a ton of communities around the world, a lot of areas that are considered very high risk. And you're coming up against people who are less than savory characters, probably don't want you there doing what you're doing. So what kind of situations do your people encounter on the job? The most extreme example I can give you is, is, is back in Kenya, and I made reference to the case before, where one of our lawyers and one of the people who was a victim of crime, was police abuse of power, when they were in court to give evidence, they left court with a taxi driver. They were then abducted by police, taken and tortured for three days and killed. Wow. So that's the kind of thing that can happen. You can still, I mean, we've got officers, well, we've got undercover officers who are out in the field, who are gathering evidence for cases. We are often faced when we go in for rescues where you get hostile crowds who are sort of paid or, or encouraged by the, the perpetrators and the well-connected people. And then just when we are in countries, that we're not in country with the support of the government, and sometimes we we don't get the support of the government right away. We find that that's an issue for us. And sometimes even when you do get the buy-in, the government changes, then start the whole process of forming relationships again. Yeah, you have to work on so many levels. It's, you know, if I travel somewhere, I'm generally going to safe places. I'm told to just be aware of my surroundings and 
maybe avoid this neighborhood over there or something like that. But what do you and your team have to think about that most organizations and people don't? What are some of the other deeper safety and security concerns that arise from having this type of highly mobile workforce that's going into such, frankly, terrible places sometimes? So locations of where we are can be a problem. Again, just using Ghana as a reference, we work on Lake Volta in Ghana, which is a massive lake in the middle of Ghana. Right. And when you're when you're out there, there's no communications because the cell phones don't work. Mm-hmm. Satellite is uh, phones are a little bit patchy because of the weather. So getting backup and getting resources there to help you when things go a bit wrong is, is difficult. So we've got to think about all of these different types of challenges, um, depending on what the casework is. So there's not really any one-size-fits-all approach to it. We kind of have to do a, a separate risk assessment for, for each operation that we're doing. Things, you know, just basic things like traveling from point A to point B in some places in, in Africa, for example, can be a, a significant challenge. Roads, vehicles, driving, people on the road, all of that kind of stuff can be a significant risk for us. One of the highest risks to, to any organization operating outside of the U.S. is road accidents, particularly with the, the NGO community. Then in addition to that, you've got environmental issues like earthquakes, hurricanes, political instability, terrorism in some of the countries we operate in, Kenya, for example, Uganda. You've had terrorist incidents in the the last uh, four to five years. Medical emergencies, in particular, some of the areas that we work in don't have particularly good medical facilities. Or if you're in a, a remote location, trying to get somebody out of that location to back to a place where where they can get medical assistance. It's a whole raft of different things that we have to think about. And then there's the day-to-day crime in in the streets that you get anywhere in the world. The biggest issue that we have is just keeping contact with staff. And if you don't have contact with your staff, they can't tell you what's wrong and you can't get assistance to them. Getting resources to them in a hurry is the things go wrong. It really is the biggest challenge for us. Well, given the sensitive nature of the organization's mission and the unique circumstances of your your global workforce, I'd like to talk about some of the key elements of your emergency response plan and overall communication strategies. You, You indicated that before, how important that is, staying in touch with people. So generally speaking, how does the organization implement risk assessments and what mitigation measures do you utilize to keep your staff safe? So risk assessment is twofold. We look at, as we do a if we know that we're going into a country, we do a prevalence study on that country. We identify what we consider are the main risks and we categorize those risks. I mean, there's a risk matrix there that you, you use to, to do that. Then we look at the, the mitigation measures that we can use to try and reduce those risks down to an acceptable level. And we put those mitigation measures in place. Preparedness is key, making sure that you've got emergency action plans, incident management plans, crisis management plans, that you drill these plans through exercises. And people have developed that muscle on just what to do when things do go wrong and they, and they will go wrong. So you've done your assessment, you've, you've identified what risks are there and you've put in place the mitigation measures that you can put in place and, and try, try to reduce those risks. And then once you've done that, you put together a security profile for the country. How we approach that is we have a set of minimum security standards for each field office. Each field office has to comply with and that brings them around to start thinking about security as part of the operation and part of the building of the, the casework and the project. And we review those risk assessments and review those minimum standards on, a, on a, an annual basis. Now, the minimum standards are global. 
but for each office, they can nuance it depending on what the casework is and what they see as their specific risks. Considering things like the infrastructure in the country, and that's the physical infrastructure, the roads, and so on, the infrastructure in terms of access to medical care, the ability of the police to respond, whether or not there's a fire services, whether or not there are ambulance services in place, and what is the political stability of the, the country that we're in. The other type of assessment that we use when we are making decisions on how to, to do things is each single operation, whether it's a traffic movement or whether it's a rescue operation, we do rapid assessment on that. And that assessment can be as simple as putting together a journey management plan, which is you leave from point A, you go to point B, what time do you leave, who's in the car, what vehicle are you going to use, what are your checkpoints getting from A to B in terms of uh, who are you going to call in, and ensuring things like you know, driving after dark because of the road conditions or, or whatever. So simple things like that to a complex tactical plan. If you've got a, a rescue that you're planning, you would sit down and you'd say, what are the, the numbers of people that we're going to be rescuing? What are our potential, who are our potential clusters in this situation? Who are we working with? Are we working with police? Are we working with social workers? Are they on board? Are they competent? What training have they had? What is our contingency plans if, if, if something goes wrong? So making sure that that's very detailed, we've got safe havens, we have to come out of places quickly, and, and you've got the response and backup responses if that's required. And everything has to have a redundancy to it. So if something falls apart, then you've got a redundant thing to back you up. Yeah, it's something you said at the very beginning is that practice makes muscle memory and muscle memory is hugely important. That's a big challenge for a lot of our listeners that don't have to go to the extremes you do to protect people and working in such dangerous places. So there's some a level of complacency that a lot of organizations find among their employees and they're reluctant to make practice for disasters part of their everyday activities, even if it's just micro practices. In your opinion, what do you feel about this muscle memory idea? Does it really help with outcomes to avoid you know worse things and everyone ends up better off if they spend just a little bit of time every day practicing and making sure they know what to do if something goes wrong? We dedicate quite a significant part of our budget to practices and to crisis management drills because I, I do think it's, it's extremely important and I do think it creates a better outcome. One of the other pieces of that is actually doing an after-action report on all of these things just to see, you know, make sure that you've got lessons learned out of it. I think what's important about it is that if the first time you look at your crisis management plan is when you're in the middle of a crisis then you're already behind the eight ball. Right. You need to understand who has to be around the table because often, in particularly in smaller organizations, everybody wants to get around the table and give their opinion, and that just there's too much chaos there. So who needs to be around the table? What is the role and responsibilities? And people need to be comfortable with that. If people have at least a sense of what that feels like and how they manage through that, then you've got a much better chance of having a, a successful outcome to the crisis. Yeah, without a doubt. And to your point, that first hour is critical because even though you've gone through planning, you don't really know what's going to happen until it happens. So the muscle memory will kick in. However, you do have to assess the field, understand what's going on, call audibles, and then communicate that out to the field. So with that in mind, what communication tools does IGM use to connect with people during emergencies? And how do you optimize those tools to ensure maximum speed, reliability, things like that? Alert Media is one of our one of the tools that we use quite a lot. And if I go back to January the sixth this year, where we had the incident at the, the Capitol, getting the build up 
to that event with the information that we're getting from Alert Media and other open sources, we were sending out by email blasts to all the people that were potentially affected by it. We made sure that everybody had the application on their phones. They could get automated messages, but also we could reach out to them as things were beginning to, to escalate and we were able to do that. For example, if you're going to go into a high-risk area, I need to know what where to come and get you if something's going wrong or potentially if something happens. Having access to open source information is important. So using, as I say, things like Alert Media and ISOS are, are critical to us, but also leveraging networks in the field. I mean, the safety and security people in this world are all about looking after people. We're not about competition and one-upmanship. So we all lend each other or share with each other our crisis management plans, our responses, our knowledge on, on the ground. And, and so leveraging that network is critically important. Oftentimes, you'll get information from somebody in the field before you get it from some of the open sources and then you can share that with others. Yeah, without a doubt. Well, do you have any other advice you can give our audience on what they can do today to take away to help improve their company's overall safety culture? What would you recommend for an immediate action item folks could take advantage of? As I said, we have the risk assessment that we do for all of our offices and we review that every single year. Oftentimes, organizations don't have the resources for that. And sometimes they'll come in, they'll do their assessment, they'll put it on the shelf. Nobody ever looks at it. So I would tell everybody, dig out your risk assessment and your emergency action plans dust them down and just see whether they're actually relevant. And if not, get them updated. If you don't have one, actually develop a plan. Well, John, thank you so much for being on the show today. You guys provide amazing services around the world. And I really appreciate your time and expertise. I know our audience learned a lot. If anyone out there listening has follow-up questions or wants to connect with you, what is the best way for them to find you out there? I'm on LinkedIn. My name is John McClellan. And also you can just get me with a direct email, jmcclellan at ijm.org. Okay, excellent. Well, thanks again for taking the time to join us on the Employee Safety Podcast. And for the rest of you out there, remember, nothing ever goes 100% according to plan in an emergency. So communication is incredibly important. If you can't communicate, you can't recover. Until next time. Alert Media is changing the way your leaders and response teams connect and communicate effectively when seconds matter. We provide our customers with a comprehensive solution for monitoring threats around the world and deploying fast, effective emergency communication. You need a panic-proof solution for high-stakes moments. In just a few clicks, your team can send a multi-channel notification to an impacted group of people and confirm their safety immediately. When employee safety is at stake, don't just communicate. Connect and confirm with a robust emergency communication solution. Visit alertmedia.com for more information. You've been listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give a quick rating of the show. Just tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.